0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you love from the original movie with
1: some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free.
2: I always used to say to my sources, I say, look, think of me as a murder weapon that has no fingerprints. <laughs> I always say, if you want to settle a score, if you want to put the knife in someone's back, as long as what right. you're telling me checks out, I'm yeah. happy to be your murder weapon. I went out to Minneapolis to see the an early performance of The Lion King. Mm. When I was trying out yeah. there before King's Broadway. And I thought, I went there to kill it. I thought, there is no way. You cannot put the family-friendly Disney company with crazy avant-garde genius, but strange, Julie Taymor. This is a train wreck. This is going to be a train wreck. Yeah. And I settled into my seat at the Orpheum Theater in Minneapolis, and my pencil, believe me, was dipped into poison because I was ready to really kill it. And then I saw, you know, beginnings of a circle of life number yeah, and this gigantic paper mache sun rising and CD Lovoka as Rafiki coming out and chanting in the African language. And then I remember these giraffe puppets loping on stage, you know, human beings on stilts with a giraffe head on top of them. And then the cheetah puppet came out and I thought, oh my God. i've I've never seen anything like this i've seen a lot of shows that i i i I, I can't i don't even have the words to describe the the majesty and the beauty of what i'm seeing and at the end of that i remember then you know being totally stunned i felt something brush up against me. I look up and this life-size elephant puppet's ear just brushed up against me was marching down (laughs) the aisle of the orphan theater and at the end of the circle of life 1500 people at the orphan theater they they just weren't giving me standing of People were standing on their seats, wow. cheering and crying and screaming because of the beauty of it all. And this old cynical reporter who was prepared to kill that show. I was one of those people standing on my seat, cheering and applauding too. <laughs>
0: Michael Riedel, one of the poison pens of Broadway, or sharpened pens anyway, a guy who writes about Broadway and who takes no prisoners, and yet still has the power to be swept away, as he was in that anecdote, seeing The Lion King for the first time. Michael's written a new book called Singular Sensation, The Triumph of Broadway, and this book is an absolute joy. I love this stuff behind the scenes on Broadway. We don't talk much about theater here on the History of Literature podcast, let alone musicals, but they have always been important to me. I fit them right into the world of literature. A close cousin, at least. I love Broadway. I have a total soft spot for musicals. There's nothing quite like the experience of attending a musical. They make me happy. They open me up. I even like some of the ones that fans of musicals don't like. Some of the sharper critics. Sound of Music, yes, that's a guilty pleasure. Saccharine as it may be. My big sister was in it when she was six, playing Gretel at the high school production of The Sound of Music, and I went to all the rehearsals and the performances I was only four, and I learned all the lines and all the songs. And what can I say? It feels like it's in my DNA at this point. 16 going on 17. Are you kidding me? Yes, please. Edelweiss, where Christopher Plummer's voice cracks. I'm a puddle. How do you solve a problem like Jack Wilson? Somewhere someone is singing that now. Maybe it's you. I don't know why I said that. I doubt it's you. You recognize the problem. But nobody sings about solving it, this problem of Jack Wilson. If you have such a song in mind, let me know. Maybe that would boost my spirits. Would you be glad to know that a bunch of nuns were singing How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria? I mean, if you were Maria, (laughs) would you be honored, flattered by those lyrics? A gibbet, a will-of-the-wisp, a clown. Not exactly flattering, is it, for poor Maria? But there are nuns who stick up for her in that song. It's so beautiful. How they chime in. Oh, my goodness. I could do this all day. She's a darling. She's a demon. She's a lamb. Oh, that gets me. She's a headache. She's an angel. She's a girl. It seems so profound somehow. At least full of genuine sentiment. I hate her. Well, I love her. I accept her. That's what that lyric is saying to me. But this is not about Rodgers and Hammerstein or me. It's about another era. So let's just move to the show. Michael Riedel in the Broadway of the 1990s with a little preview of our Chekhov month today on the History of Literature. go. Let's get right to it. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the podcast. A lot to cover today, starting with a listener email. We have a correction to make. This is from Francesca, who we heard from on Monday. After I recorded that episode, I responded to Francesca and she sent me an email, so I realized I had some correcting to do. Let's hear it. Subject, the lady with a dog. Dear Jack, I was surprised... I was Sorry, I was a surprised and very happy fangirl when your email arrived. I've been spending Thanksgiving week in Connecticut with my husband, and we've been listening to one or two of your episodes nearly every day. I have to clarify my part in the Borges book and the others in that series. Although I have designed both jackets and covers, my 40-plus year career, most of it spent at Viking, was as a book designer. That's designing the actual book, choosing the typeface, figuring out how long the book will be, arranging the title page and other display type, laying out the art, if any, etc. You'll see my design credit on lots of copyright pages. I'm joyfully retired now, but it was a satisfying and mostly fun job. I love when you read from the work of the author you're discussing. Your excerpt from The Brothers Karamazov, in which Father Zosima consoles the bereaved mother, had me in tears. Onward and upward. Very best wishes to you for the holidays, the new year, and the new administration in D.C. Francesca. P.S. Watch The Lady with the Dog. Okay. Well, thank you for that clarification, Francesca. I was praising Francesca for the Borges cover, but it turns out that that had been designed by some other saint. Some genius saint. I have enjoyed many Viking books, though. They're up there with Penguin for me. And I've enjoyed many different versions of Borges, for that matter. So I probably have appreciated Francesca's work in the past. Designing the books, the typeface, the length, the arrangement, the layout, all of that has given me such joy over the years. It's like holding a little artwork in my hand. I have thousands of these little masterpieces on my shelves. We think about the writer. We don't always think about the people who turn those books into beautiful objects, but Point taken, Francesca, and all the credit to the designer of the cover, as well as to you for all your work over the years. Thank you for the email. I'm glad you enjoy those episodes where I read from the work and that Brothers Karamazov episode. That one has moved a lot of listeners. Thank you for sharing your experience with me. I was touched and humbled. And yes, I will watch The Lady with the Dog. This is my great Chekhov month this December. I am completely... Indulging myself with Chekhov, I feel like I'm overeating. Like I'm gorging myself with melancholy and Russian realism. I wonder if you can gain weight from Chekhov, or maybe I'll waste away. Or maybe my mind will be full, and my mood, oh, it's so good. The weather has turned. I get the fireplace going, get a little crackle coming from there. A little heat, a little light, and Chekhov. Chekhov's good all the time, all year round. Summer nights are really good, too. But December with the waning afternoon light and the glow in the fireplace and the early darkness outside. Oh, it's so good. It's so good to be alive. (laughs) Watching all these plays about gloomy people and suicides. Thank you, Mr. Chekhov. So, Let's turn now to our conversation with Michael Riedel, an expert in Broadway. He was there in the 1990s when all those musicals were parading through The Lion King, Rent, Sunset Boulevard, Ragtime. You remember that era, right? The producers at the end of it. Then we had Wicked and Avenue Q and Hamilton. Things just kept on rolling. But this is back in that sweet spot. After Cats and Phantom and Les Mis when the world had their eyes on London and New York, especially New York, turning to New York, waiting to see what would happen next. And I have a question for Michael, which you'll hear. All this glorious spectac- spectacle, all these singable tunes, all those costumes, a huge cast. There's nothing quite like being in theater for a big live performance, hearing the songs, letting the music of the orchestra... And the big cast with all those beautiful voices, letting all that fill your chest. But what about a Chekhov? Can we expect to see the next Chekhov? A drama? A drama for grown-ups? Spoken word only? Would there be a room for a Chekhov on Broadway? Or do the economics rule out such a possibility? Are the audiences there? And we're talking about pre- and post pandemic. We'll get into that with Michael as well. He has some ideas about what's going to happen once this quarantine is over. But most of the conversation is about the glorious era of big Broadway musicals, the 1990s. Michael Riedel and the Triumph of Broadway after this. Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hatcast. Follow the Cat in the Hatcast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hatcast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Hello, everyone. This is Jack, here to tell you about a way to eat better and easier. That's right. Factor. And they're delicious, ready-to-eat meals. These things are amazing, chef crafted, always fresh, never frozen. All you do is heat them up and you're ready to go. No prepping, cooking, or cleanup, and you get something healthy, nutritious, and tasty. I love factor meals, especially on those days when I'm in the office. They're better for me than snacks or junk food and much cheaper and faster than buying my lunch at a restaurant. You can choose options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus keto, and you can change your schedule to get as much or as little as you need every week, whatever suits you and your family best. Head to FactorMeals.com slash Literature50 and use code Literature50 to get 50% off. That's code Literature50 at FactorMeals.com slash Literature50 to get 50% off. Okay, joining me now is Michael Riedel the author and New York Post theater columnist whose bestseller Razzle Dazzle delighted readers with the gossip and action of 20th century Broadway. His new book, Singular Sensation, The Triumph of Broadway, picks up in the 1990s and tracks the rise of American shows and playwrights in the aftermath of British mega-musicals. Michael Riedel, welcome to the History of Literature. good to be with you. So let's start with you. Uh, I'm interested where you grew up and and whether you had any connections to the theater in your childhood. Uh, I grew up in Genesee, New York,
2: a small town outside of outside of uh, Rochester, New York, and um, um, I did not have a big connection to the theater when I was growing up as a kid. I was in a play, uh, mm-hmm. ninth grade. I was in the Diary of Anne Frank, mm. and it was a, it was a kind of a, I must say, a seminal production because it was the only. You know, maybe the only production of the Diary of Anne Frank that was the old Christian production of Anne Frank because <laughs> there was, there were, well, there was only one Jewish family in my town that I grew up in. It was a pretty rural place called, uh, they were the Levens, and everyone always said, oh, you know, the Levens, the Jewish family. Yeah. Uh, and the Levens kids auditioned for Anne Frank, but they, they weren't cast. And instead, oh. a bunch of Episcopalians, Presbyterians, and Catholics were uh, cast in the Diary of Anne Frank. Oh, boy. But, um, I, I did. I played Jan Dussel, who was the dentist. He was uh, one of the uh, the hideaways, of course. Of course, there in the attic. Yeah. And uh, it was. A, it was, You know, it wasn't a huge part, but it was kind of fun.
0: Yeah. Uh, but
2: what was the most important thing Frank to me was, you know, one of my thirteen, fourteen years old. Uh, what do I know about the Holocaust or World War II? But that being in that play got me to read a lot about World War II, about the mm-hmm. Holocaust, and. That really began for me uh, what's more important to me in my life than the theater, which is a love of history. Mm, and uh, right. I just I started to learn about, uh, you know, World War Two and then Churchill and Roosevelt and Hitler and the Holocaust and Stalin and Russia and all this stuff. And, you know, so I wound up going to Columbia University in New York uh, as a history major mm-hmm. with the idea of becoming maybe a history professor or uh, a lawyer. You know, i mean, a history professor. I'd be poor a lawyer. I might make some money. So those were the options back then. Yeah, but um, uh, being in New York, I went to see plays off Broadway, on Broadway. You know, I just wanted to experience what was going on in New York. And uh, one summer, uh, I headed to—I wanted to stay in New York instead of going back to Geneseo. And I needed a job to help my dad pay for the dorm room that summer. And there was a at the career services uh, office. They had a posting for. An intern wanted for Broadway producer Elizabeth McCann's office, mm. so right. I applied for that, and uh, um, I got the job with Liz McCann, who to this day remains a friend of mine. She's 87, 88 now, I think, mm-hmm. and she was crusty and funny. And I remember my first inter- my first day, my my first interview with her. She said, "Why the hell do you want to be in the theater? It's a lousy place to work. Do something else." <laughs> But I got the job anyway. And, you know, I worked on um, that summer. She was producing a play called Les Liaisons Dangereuses with one unknown English actor by the name of Alan Rickman. Mm. And um, I got to know him, and it was just fun. You know, I I was an errand boy, basically. But I had to, this is before, you know, faxes and texts and and, uh, uh, email, I would have to take every message or every note. I'd have to run around Times square dropping it off backstage with the actors. And I got to hang out with Alan and a bunch of the actors and they were fun. And then I would have to deliver messages to Jimmy Niederlander's office. And he owned a bunch of theaters in New York. And sometimes I'd have to deliver messages to the Schubert offices. And and that was fun too. Mm. I just got to know some of these kind of colorful, interesting people, but I had no, um, I mean, I didn't, I I was not going to be an actor. I I wasn't a director. I I, mean, I worked for a producer, but I, to this day, I, I barely know what a, what a producer does. Um yeah. And it, you know, but I kind of thought I kind of thought the theater world is an interesting place to be and and then, you know, as luck would have it, when I was graduating that um the following summer, uh someone I knew who was in the theater department at Columbia had taken a job editing a magazine called Theater Week, long out of business. And he said, I'm looking for a managing editor. Would you want to do it? And and I mean, I've never written about the theater. I've never written any journalism whatsoever. Hmm. All I had written was history papers. But I took the job and uh, it was was great fun. And I remember I got to interview people like Julie Stein and Stephen Sondheim and Jerry Herman. They were all fun, interesting people. And I thought, you know, I'd rather be doing this than uh, going to law school. So I stuck with it for a few years and wound up going to the New York Daily News and then Went to the New York Post and got a theater column there and uh, never looked back.
0: Right. Well, one of the things that interested me so much about the book, and I'm not familiar with your uh, criticism and your reviews. But one of the things that interested me about the book, I can see where your interest in history kind of comes in, because you tell such good stories. And the characters, the the main characters of the stories that you choose to tell come to life, as in you know a popular history book, uh, the way a, a good historian would make them come to life. But one of the things that interested me was, so many of the stories you tell are about the behind the scenes, getting the show onto the stage and what the business decisions and the kind of the rise and fall of the fortunes of the producers. And it did feel to me now that you mention it, it it doesn't feel necessarily like somebody who is only limited to a a love for acting or, or a love for directing or just one aspect of it, but kind of the whole project of getting a play onto the stage in theater. Is that what you were doing when you were writing your columns and your pieces? Or is that something you developed for the book?
2: No, I mean, I was always, you know, I was never a critic, Mm -hmm. just somebody who went and saw the show and then went home and wrote a little book report. I was always a reporter. yeah, Um, And so I was curious about the behind the scenes people. And the power struggles that go on behind Yeah. The scenes. Right. And who's really up and who's down, and who's yeah. going to win a Tony Award, who's not. And, you know, it's kind of the, the whole politics of Broadway. Because yeah. I was interested also in politics as a kid, too. So that interested me a lot more than just going to see a show and saying, oh, I liked it or I didn't like it. What's going on behind the scenes? You know, how are they jockeying for position in this Tony Award race? Are they making money or are they losing money? You know, I was the leading lady fighting with Andrew Lloyd Webber, as, you know, I detail chapters on Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. So I was always more of a behind. The scenes guy, and in some ways, that really helped me uh, establishing my career as a reporter because there were very few people kind of delving into that when I came along in the um, in the early nineties. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, I mean, the dominant force in the in, at that time was Frank Rich, and he was a drama critic. Right now, Frank understood the business of show business, and he definitely had his finger on the pulse of what was going on in the business. And he he picked up a lot of gossip, but fundamentally, he was a critic. And I kind of came through and uh, I said, I, you know, I, I'd, I'd rather talk to the producers. I'd rather talk to the press agents. I'd rather talk to the, the stagehands and the lawyers. What's really happening behind yeah. the scenes? Because Broadway's a, I fundamentally understood that Broadway was a business and it was becoming in the eighties, certainly became a big business with, you know, shows such as Cats and Phantom and Les Mis and Miss Saigon. But in the nineties, as I cover in this book, it became a very big business,
1: Right. rent,
2: Chicago, the Lion King, the Producers, Angels in America. I mean, these were shows that people knew as well as they knew any movie or TV show back in those days. And I just, you know, had my, had a, I, I, a sense, I guess, that the business of Broadway was a fascinating topic. So that's what I covered. And in, you know, both my books, I wrote a book before this one called Razzle Dazzle, The Battle for Broadway, which is about Broadway in the sixties and seventies and eighties and how, you know, how when it was falling apart, a couple of, a handful of people held it together. Um, I just was always more interested in in sort of the the unknown powers of the business. Yeah, the quiet people. And I guess one of the one of the books that really influenced me now that I look back on it. And I read this book before I wrote my first book, and certainly before I wrote my second book. But there's a wonderful book by uh, Lillian Ross, who was a New Yorker writer. Mm-hmm. And the book the book is called Picture, and it's about the making of the John Huston movie, the red badge of courage mm. and Lillian Ross writes a very detailed book on all the struggles they had to get the movie on. And she's on the set and the problems with the actors and John Huston's own particular problems. And you're really in the trenches yeah. with, um, with John Huston when he's trying to make this movie. And then the movie is finally done. It, get re- it gets released by the studio and Lillian Ross goes to interview, his name was uh, Louis, Louis Skank. And Louis Skank was, he owned, um, uh, God, was it, he owned Lowe's, yeah, he owned Lowe's Theater. So he owned all, he owned all of the, the big theaters across America, the Lowe's Theater chain. Right. And so you go through this entire book of how this movie is made and the struggles to make the movie. And the last chapter is Lillian Ross interviewing Louis Skank who had absolutely nothing to do with the movie, he owns all the theaters, and he just releases the movie in his theaters. And he looks at the box office results for the first week, and he said, ah, it's a loser. I'm pulling it from my, uh, oh. my movie theaters. And I thought, that, that's where the power, uh, that's it, yeah. that's where the power is. Yeah. You can go through these struggles to this, that, and the other thing, but some guy that you've never heard of sitting atop Times Square in the offices of Lowe's, I think he may have been in the Paramount building back in those days, I can't remember now, but it's just one, you know, the one guy who has all the power and decides, "Nah, not doing well. It's finished. It's over with. Yeah, it's gone."
0: And, and that, I remember
2: thinking, "That's that's the stuff that I really want to write about on Broadway. Those people who have that kind of power."
0: Well, it seems like in this era, that's kind of what Broadway is like. And I was struck by, you know, coming into the book "Cold," thinking, "Oh, a book about theater. Maybe you'll read. Maybe I'll read about someone whose love for Shakespeare takes them on this journey, and they." figure out a way to mount this production and then they win some awards or but this is like it's it's more like executives from disney deciding to to swing for the fences and figure out what properties they have that could be turned into a smash hit musical and and people keep betting their their careers basically on on big budget spectacles and, uh, you know, trying to get the biggest stars and uh, and then, you know, having potentially career ending disasters if things don't go well. It, it really feels uh, more like Hollywood than one might expect a, a book about, say, regional theater to be.
2: Well, my God, if I wrote a book about regional theater, I wouldn't be talking to you because two people would read that book. <laughs> uh, so not, I, I, want, I mean, I want, you know, I understand having covered Broadway so long, I understand how high the stakes are. People put a lot of money on the line, yeah. on the line. They put a lot of uh, their emotional life on the line, but it's not always just big budgets. You know, and, you know, I begin the book with Sunset Boulevard, which indeed was a big budget show. It was, mm-hmm. the, it was the last of the big British spectacles. And it, of course, was Andrew Lloyd Webber's show. And it's a good show, but it was riven with scandal. Andrew Lloyd Webber, you know, yeah. fired Patty Lapone yeah. and she sued him. And he <laughs> fired Faye Dunaway, and she sued him. And he had a big fight with Glenn Close. I and mean, all these avenging divas were trying to kill Andrew Lloyd Webber. And <laughs> right. and but but you know, at the end of the day, the show was so expensive, and we thought back then that the British invasion of Broadway, as we called it, would go on forever. I mean, Cats was a big budget show, yeah. Anthem was Phantom, big budget, is yeah. right. was big budget, yeah, and they had to have chandeliers and helicopters and turntables and tires that flew up to the heavyside <laughs> layer. Everything had to be, you know, full of special effects. But Sunset Boulevard was, we didn't know it at the time, but as I was putting the book together, I began to think, you know, Sunset Boulevard was the last of those big British spectacles and mm-hmm. it had so much juicy gossip as I detail in the book behind the scenes that it's irresistible to write about. But, you know, the show that came after Sunset Boulevard that really shifted that really changed everything. And, kind of is the launching pad for the 1990s on Broadway is a show that only cost about $250,000 compared to Sunset Boulevard's 14 million, $250,000 to do off Broadway written by someone you'd never heard of before featuring a cast of nobodies. And that show is Jonathan Larson's rent.
1: Mm, and yeah.
2: you know, that show and sad, you know, sad to say, as I, as I show in the book, poor Jonathan Larson, you know, he died of a, of a heart aneurysm uh, on the, the night after his dress rehearsal so we never mm. saw what rent created but rents suddenly with rent you had a show that was young contemporary hip full of a young attractive cast dealing with the issues of today dealing with aids dealing with artists you know trying to keep a foothold in new york city at a time when it was being gentrified and they could no longer afford their apartments dealing with drug addiction transgendering i mean all this kind of stuff that we think, well, yeah, you know, everyone has dealt with these things now before. But 22 years ago, whenever Rent came out, people weren't writing about this on Broadway. You know, on Broadway, we were still watching The Phantom, Cats, and yeah, Liz. Yeah. We weren't thinking about, you know, many musicals that dealt with AIDS. And, um, you know, Jonathan Larson wrote that show. And it in, it inspired a whole generation of writers who now dominate Broadway. Well, they did before it was closed. But, you know, Lynn manuel Miranda wrote Yeah, Hamilton. right. He saw, he saw rent 30 times, 30 Bobby, times. Lopez, who, yeah. Yeah, Bobby Lopez, who, who wrote Avenue Q in the book of Mormon. He saw it 25 times, um, and Tom Yorkie and, and, um, I'm sorry, Brian Yorkie and Tom Kitt, who won the Pulitzer prize for next to normal, uh, they're here on Broadway today because of rent and mm-hmm. that, and I was looking, I'm always looking as a writer and I guess maybe a little amateur historian, me, something shifts, you know, something happens and it changes the whole terrain. And really that was Rent. And, you know, after Rent, the British, Cameron McIntosh, Andrew Lloyd Webber, they, they exited stage right. And after that, you had the return of Americans dominating Broadway, because then you get Rent, and then Chicago, and you have Disney coming in, and uh, you have The Lion King. And it ultimately, you know, all leads to Mel Brooks triumphing at the mm. end of uh, the 90s with, uh, with the producers. Mm. And I end the book, you know, I was, I was looking for an end for the book. That was the hardest thing because I, I can't really start writing until I figure out where the book's going to end. And my initial plan was, well, OK, I'll take it through the 90s. So my first book ended at the end of the 80s. I can do the 90s. I can do the 2000s and I can go up to Hamilton. But as I began to re- report the book,
1: because mm-hmm. I interviewed
2: you know 150 people for the book. Yeah, I thought, my God, if I have to write all the way up to Hamilton, this book is going to be longer than you know Robert right. Caro's The Power Broker, <laughs> and that's twelve hundred pages. And I don't have an enemy to write a twelve hundred page book. So That'll I thought, be the next volume, uh, maybe. Well, yeah. Well, I, I got to end this book somewhere. I, I I knew I could do the '90s because I lived through it. I saw all the shows, and I you know I did see the Americans reclaim Broadway. I saw the importance of Angels in America,
1: mm-hmm. the
2: return of Edward Albee, as I document in the book, and. Um and I my idea was clear, which was that you know, in the nineties Broadway really became once again as it had not been since the forties and the fifties, part of mainstream American popular culture. The mm-hmm. shows like rent and The Lion King in Chicago, they were as well known as any movie or TV show of the era. Everybody knew those shows, those titles when they opened, yeah, and I thought, okay, that's a that's a good decade, but how do I end it? and you know, I ended it because one day I as I was you know, mapping the book out in my mind, I was. I looked outside of my window. I looked down here in the West Village in New York. I looked outside of the window one day. Uh, Now I just see, you know, fancy apartment buildings that have sprung up in my neighborhood in the last uh, 15 years. But I moved them to to, my apartment in 96. And I woke up one morning, I looked at I always had a clear-on view every morning of the World Trade Center.
1: Mm.
2: And one morning I woke up and I saw this big black gash in the North tower of the world world trade center with smoke coming out. And that was a very weird sight to see. I got to tell you. Yeah. And, um, and then I saw the second plane hit the world trade center and I watched the buildings fall. And I remember that morning I called my friend, Jerry Schoenfeld, who was running the Schubert organization. And I said, Jerry, what's going on? I said, Michael, we don't know. He said, we've been told that there are bombs in times square and you know, we're not, we're closing all the shows tonight and we don't know what's going to happen. And then you know, it was Rudy Giuliani when he was saying uh, as the mayor of New York who and I did interview him for this book. It was Rudy Giuliani who that night, September 11th, uh, told me that uh, he said I, I had to get some sleep. I had to go home because I knew I had another horrific day to deal with. And I thought if I just get one hour of sleep, I can, t- you know, just get, try to get through everything here. Couldn't sleep. And he happened to be reading a biography of Winston Churchill. And um He turned to the chapter on when London was being bombed by the Nazis Mm. and Churchill insisted that the theaters, the ballet, the opera, the symphony, that they all go on Mm. as a way of showing the British people and the world, really, that the German bombing would not bring England to its knees, that life would go on as we know it. And Rudy thought, you know what, I need to show the world that New York. Will not be brought to its knees by terrorism. Yeah. And what's the what is the one emblem that New York has? Yes, we have the Statue of Liberty and the Empire State Building. But the other thing that New York has that no other city in the world has is Broadway. Right. And Rudy thought, if I get the lights of Broadway lit as soon as possible, that is a big symbol that New York is not broken, and it's open for business. And come and support us. Mm. And as I detail as I detail in the book, you know, those two days of getting Broadway up and running again. By September 13th, Thursday night, two days after, you know, 3,500 people were yeah. murdered in the city. And we had no, and believe me, I lived here. We had no idea that there, there was a entire possibility that there were going to be more terrorists.
1: Right. Officers. Yeah. We did not know. We yeah. didn't know.
2: But I went that I went that night to the producers. Then the hottest show in town. I went with Mel Brooks and his wife, Anne Bancroft. And then, you know, 500 people came out. You know, that show was sold out. You couldn't get a ticket. But, you yeah. know, on September 13th, 2001. There weren't a whole bunch of people rushing to see a Broadway show, but 500 people came. They came. And yeah. Matthew Broderick and Nathan Lane, uh, at the curtain call, they led 500 people in tears singing, "God bless America." And yeah. I remember, I remember you know in the apartment looking, thinking that September 11th, I thought, that is how I end a book, and I show how Broadway came back after what was the most horrific and unexpected attack on American soil.
1: Yeah,
2: And Broadway rallied. Yeah. And that's why, you know, I called I call the um the subtitle of the book it's you know it's Singular Sensation and the subtitle is The Triumph of Broadway. And the Triumph of Broadway meant Broadway coming back after that terrible, terrible moment in American history. And I never intended you know, I never intended for the title to be ironic. I finished the book in February and went skiing the first week of March and I got back from the trip and um broadway shut down and it's still shut down now
0: so right giuliani it it is a little weird to think of him now because he's so prominent in what's going on in in the country and he's got such a different persona and i don't know exactly what's happening with him but he was also there at the beginning of the 90s and kind of in the the i guess the resurrection you might say of Times square or the conversion of Times square to be a more family friendly place which uh was controversial. I mean, a lot of people thought it was eliminating some character or disnifying Times Square, but it had a huge impact on Broadway, right?
2: Well, it did. I mean, you know what Rudy understood in the early nineties that um, you gotta you, you, you gotta get New York back on track here. I mean, if you don't live in New York, and I, I you know I came here in the mid eighties, <clears throat> so I saw New York when it was you know it was a little rough here. Yeah, certainly Times Square was not a great place to be. And Rudy was like, "We, I gotta fix this city. I gotta." get it cleaned up. And I have to say and, and what he did was he again, I mean Rudy Rudy loved Broadway. He Rudy loved the opera, mm-hmm. he loved the theater. Mm-hmm. And whatever you want to say about Rudy now, he understood the importance of the arts to New York City, whereas, you know, frankly our current mayor Bill de Blasio does not. Mm-hmm. Bill de Blasio has no interest in the theater and in fact my friends in the theater before uh this pandemic you know and listen the theater is a three billion dollar a year business for broadway or i'm sorry for new york yeah. so it's, it's not an insignificant part of our economy and broadway has its own issues and concerns but every time every time the producers of the theater owners would go to de blasio's office and say hey we got some problems with traffic issues or biking lanes or snarling up traffic and de blasio was like you people are rich you're for the one percent i'm not interested so you know De Blasio has been an absolute disaster, for the, certainly for the arts in the city and also for the city itself. Rudy, for all of his faults uh, now, but he, he wasn't mayor. marry lived through it. Rudy loved it. He loved the arts. And he fundamentally understood that one of the things that makes New York City unique and is important to its economy are the arts, not just mm. theater, but the opera, the ballet, the symphony. I mean, all these things are why people move to New York City. Yeah. Right? I, just, I just wanted to finish up one thought here about um, uh, Times Square. And it's uh, revitalization under Ruby. As you said, you know, people thought it was disnification and this, then the other thing. But I had that sense, too. And because I'd lived in New York in the 80s, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I saw Broadway and Times Square become a lot of tourists and, uh, you know, um, um, Madame Tussauds Wax Museum and right. this,
0: that, and the other thing. I don't know, not really <laughs> New
2: York, but but I do remember when I wrote my first book. Razzle Dazzle, the Battle for Broadway, which really details the struggle to um clean up the Times Square neighborhood. And I remember interviewing a guy, I'll never forget him. I, I I hope he's still with us. I I don't know. His name was Sid Baumgarten, and he was appointed by Abe Beam in the 70s to try to run the um the Uh, police task force to kind of crack down on crime in Times Square then
1: Mm -hmm. and it was
2: really an uphill battle because Times Square was that was really when it was in the muck back then and I remember saying to Sid when I interviewed him I said yeah but you know you know you guys achieved some success and then Rudy came in and Disney came in and I said but you know it's kind of like you know it's like the mall of America now yeah and I thought you know it had more character back then and he said you know what it's easy for you to say easy for you You know, nice little white kid who went to Columbia, who went down to Times Square and he thought, oh, it's kind of exciting to be in this strange place. "But Let me tell you the number of times that we would go into sleazy hotels and find in plastic bags prostitutes who'd been chopped up by their pimps Mm. or by a job. No one ever knew what their names were. No one never knew anything about them, but they were the victims of that Times Square. And that is not something that would have ever have touched your life. But he said, but believe me, a lot of people back in those days were killed and were murdered. People who are ne- you would never know their names. Um,
0: mm. And so if
2: that's the Times Square you want, you know, have at it. But it's not the Times Square I want. I thought that's a perspective I had not considered.
0: Yeah, right. How important was Rosie O'Donnell in the Broadway scene of the 1990s?
2: Very important. I mean, yeah. Rosie was to Broadway in the 90s what Ed Sullivan was to Broadway
0: right. in the 50s yeah. and 60s. Right. Because
2: Ed Sullivan used to put all the Broadway shows on on yeah.
1: the
2: show, you know, yeah. and everybody watched the show. And Rosie had that talk show in the 90s where eight million people tuned in every morning yeah. to watch the Rosie O'Donnell and show. She and she loved Broadway. Loved it. Yeah. Loved it. You know, She would go to the theater every night and that morning she'd hold the playbill on her desk and say, I saw this show last night. You got to see it. It's great. You have the actors on. She also did, and this was kind of key. She had the performances on. So she would say, mm. and now from Titanic, we have the opening number. Yep. Now, back in those days, before Rosie, the only time you ever really saw numbers from Broadway shows was once a year on the Tony Awards. Right. That was it. But she was putting these numbers from musicals, from The Lion King, from Titanic, from Chicago, from Rent. She was putting them on her show yeah. every morning. Eight million people tuned in. And again, she was part of the reason why in the 90s, Broadway was, part, of, again, part of the mainstream of American popular culture. When eight million people every morning hear Rosie O'Donnell say, you've got to see the show. Right. And by the way, you have to eat at Joe Allen, where I ate last night. I mean, yeah. I remember talking to Joe Allen, who owns the the restaurant named after him. <laughs> and he said, Rosie was the best thing for me. He said, suddenly, you know, I was a, he said, I was a New York restaurant. I was a theater district guy. Only theater people came. Rosie's show starts. And all of a sudden these people from all over the country, we have to eat here because Rosie told us to eat here. Yeah, We just saw the show because Rosie told us to see it. And, you know, she became more powerful, in fact, than the drama critics, the drama critic circle. Right. You know, they, they, they gave a mixed review to a show that I write about in, in Singular Sensation a wonderful show that I love called Titanic, written by Maury Yeston and Peter Stone. And Titanic had a lot of problems in previews. And I went to the opening night and I thought it was terrific. But my friends at the Drama Critics Circle, they they all gave it, you know, pans to mixed reviews. But Rosie saw and loved it. And she talked it up on her show and uh, it, she beat back the critics. Everybody went to see Titanic because of Rosie.
0: Right. And the clientele sort of shifted from, you know, maybe New Yorkers who lived on the Upper East Side or commuters from Connecticut who would come in for a show and became nationalized, and it became uh, something tourists wanted to see. They knew the names of the shows. They had seen the numbers on Rosie's show, and they were looking to have a vacation in New York with their family, and they would include a trip to the Lion King as part of the part of the vacation.
2: Yeah, uh, but, but I, you know, I think in the, in the 90s, though, Things changed in the 2000s. In the 2000s, that's when producers really began pursuing that tourist audience. And they were doing what we would call jukebox musicals. You know, let's uh, resurrect the old catalog of the Beach Boys. Mm, I mean, when it works, you get get Jersey Boys. But believe me, there were a (laughs) lot of crappy jukebox musicals (laughs) I had to sit through. And they were pursuing, oh, a big movie title. Legally Blonde, that was a popular movie. Let's do a musical based on that. That happened in the 2000s. The shows that I write about in the 90s. All of these shows that are now famous, I tell you, and I, I really try to get at this in the book, because you and I know Rent's a hit, and Chicago's a hit, and The Lion King's a hit. But trust me, the people who put those shows together, they did not know mm. if those shows were going to be hits or flops, and yeah. they took enormous risks, yeah. enormous risks, and they're expensive. We think, oh, big cast. Well, well, yeah. Right, well, yeah, but but you know, if you think about The Lion King, so you got Disney, family friendly company. They did Beauty and the Beast. That was their first show on Broadway 1994. I think it opened. And I, you know, I didn't care for it. And most of the theater people thought, oh, my God, theme park shows. Here we go. This is not what we want Broadway to be. But you know, somehow Michael Eisner instinctively, he was then running Disney. When they had the idea, let's do for our next show. And Beauty and the Beast, you know, critics didn't like it, but it was enormously success- successful finance- financially. So uh, Michael said, well, let's do another show. And they said, well, let's do The Lion King. But he knew instinctively if we do another kind of show in the model of fashion of Beauty and the Beast, they're going to kill us again. The theater people, the snobs, as he would call them, are going to you know, – they're going to deny us a Tony Award. They're going to give us bad reviews, and yeah. they're going to look down their nose at us. So he said, let's do something <laughs> different. You know, let's do something different. And Peter Schneider and Tom Schumacher, who were running the Disney theater department then, and they both came from the theater. They came from avant-garde theater. In fact, they were not, you know, they were not corporate guys. They were theater people who just happened to be, you know, they made their career in the animation department, um, restoring it with with animated features like uh, Beauty and the Beast and the Little Mermaid and, and The Lion King. But they were fundamentally theater people. And they knew this avant-garde director by the name of Julie Canemar. Mm. And when they were trying to think, well, how do we do something that's different from Beauty and the Beast? And they said, well... Let's check in with our pal, Julie Tamor. Yeah. I, I mean, I knew Julie then, but Julie did weird stuff. I mean, she was not a commercial person at all. Right. She was doing, you know, I remember seeing Juan Darion, a carnival mass at Lincoln Center. It was two and a half hours without an intermission. And, you know, a, a woman breastfeeding a lion cub puppet. It was interesting, but it was weird. <laughs> and they hired her. And I remember, and you know, one of the great moments in my life in the theater, and I detail this in the book. I went out to Minneapolis to see the an early performance of The Lion King mm. when I was trying out yeah. there before King's Broadway. And I thought I went there to kill it. I thought there is no way you cannot put the family friendly Disney company with crazy avant garde genius, but strange Julie Taymor. This <laughs> is a train wreck. This is going to be a train wreck. Yeah. And I settled into my seat at the Orpheum Theater in Minneapolis. And my pencil, believe me, was dipped into poison because I was ready to really kill it. And then I saw, you know, the beginnings of a circle of life number. Yeah. And this gigantic paper mache sun rising and CD Loca as Rafiki coming out and chanting in the African language. And then I remember these giraffe puppets loping on the stage you know human beings on stilts with the the giraffe head on top of them and then the cheetah puppet came out and i thought oh my god i've I've never seen anything like this i've seen a lot of shows then i i i i can't i don't even the words to describe the the majesty and the beauty of what i'm seeing and at the end of that i remember then you know being totally stunned and some, I felt something brush up against me. I look up and this life-size elephant puppet. Its ear had just brushed up against me, was marching down the <laughs> aisle of the Orphan Theater. And at the end of the circle of life, 1,500 people at the Orphan Theater, they, they just weren't giving you the standing ovation. People were standing on their seats, wow. cheering and crying and screaming because of the beauty of it all. And this old cynical reporter who was prepared to kill that show, I was one of those people <laughs> standing on my seat, cheering and applauding too. So the point of that is Disney did not know what they had. They did not know that they had the most successful entertainment property of all time. They took a risk on hiring Julie Taymor. Yeah. You know, nobody, nobody could have imagined what she could have done with the Lion King. Nobody.
0: Now, when we talk about Broadway, we're talking about theaters that have, you know, 500 seats or more. A lot of them have a thousand seats. And when people get used to that kind of an experience, and they come to expect, you know, we're going to see something we've never seen before, or we're going to see something that we couldn't see at a movie, or, you know, it's it's going to have these, these musical numbers that we can hum on the way out and that sort of thing. I'm about to start a month of podcast episodes on the plays of Chekhov. And I'm curious as to, I mean, with a couple of exceptions, uh, you talk about Angels in America in the 90s, and you talk about uh, August Wilson's plays, which seemed like they were sort of a, a labor of love or a, a, a break even or even lose a little money but win some some prestige awards and, and that kind of thing. It makes me wonder if the musicals and the that kind of experience has crowded out drama or if there just isn't a, enough of an audience to go see, uh, to fill a, a Broadway-sized theater for strictly spoken word.
2: Well, um no, in fact we've had quite a few good plays uh, before the pandemic hit. And you know, in the 90s we did have uh, certainly Angels in America,
1: mm-hmm. which
2: was an important play because it reminded people of how great plays can be. I mean, Angels yeah. in America was really something that everybody was talking about then. And and I, you know, August Wilson, whom I knew pretty well and I liked him a lot. Um August August plays Fences was was uh, his only play I think that made money on Broadway, but people still backed him because they recognized the importance of uh, mm-hmm. of August as a writer. Uh, and also, I do show, and one of the chapters, actually my favorite chapter in the book, is uh, the return of Edward Albee, whom
1: mm-hmm. I knew quite
2: well. And Edward, you know, wrote Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? and a delicate balance, but you know, in the eighties and early nineties, Edward was he was cast out of the kingdom. He'd had a number of flops on Broadway and people just turned their back on him and he came roaring back in the 90s with the great three tall women. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then he had tremendous revivals of A Delicate Balance and uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And of course then, you know, at the ripe old age of 75, he was able to shock Broadway audiences with his play called The Goat or Who is Sylvia, which is about a, it's about a man who falls in love with a goat, a man who's happily married and he falls in love with a goat. Yeah. It's not a metaphor. He falls in love with a goat. And <laughs> I remember going to see a preview of that play with Edward And, the you know, that middle class, upper middle class, I should say, Broadway audience, some of those uh, ladies were kind of shocked by this whole thing. And they would storm out of the play. And Edward had a big smile on his face because he could still get under their skin. and But it was it was such an interesting play. It was so controversial at the time. People were talking about it always. And I remember um, a friend of mine who worked on the show said, I think I put this story in the book. A friend was leaving the theater one night and he saw these two upper middle class upper east side ladies who were who just seen the play the goat and they were trying to make sense of it and they were looking at a policeman on a mounted horse in times square and one woman said to the other she said do you find that horse attractive <laughs> and, <you> know, <laughs> that's, that's how that's, opening their that's minds <laughs> be, that's how all be got to those people um, right so no and the other thing too that happened in the 90s and I, also I have a chapter on this in the book um, they figured out this formula to make yeah, plays work, and right. that was you, you need stars. Okay? Right. you gotta it's you know, if you have a big big musical that's popular, you can sell tickets to that. But how do you sell how do you sell a play? Well, you need a star. And in the nineties, they figured out this formula where you could get big stars to come to do a play, mainly written by David Hare, the, the great British playwright, mm-hmm. because most of these plays in the nineties were written by David, and you can put a big star into it. And the formula, the financial, the financial formula is, okay, everybody's going to take only a little bit of money up front, but everybody will be cut in on the profits at the end of the run. Mm-hmm. So you could get Liam Neeson in the Judas Kiss play yeah. about Oscar Wilde. You could get Nicole Kidman in the Blue Room, which was David's adaptation of, of uh, Schnitzler's, Schnitzler's play La Ronde. Right. And you could get Judy Dench in his, David's play, Amy's View. Yeah. And these actors would do it for about 14 weeks, and they make maybe $1,300, $1,400 a week, which is nothing for, you know, Nicole Kidman. Lee right, Mason, Denzel Washington, Luch- Den- Den- I mean. yeah, yeah. Denzel, yeah. But at the end of it, you're going to get 12% of the profits. Mm. And those plays were so popular, and within 14 weeks, you know, they would gross $15, $20 million. And, you know, you get 11% of that. That's a pretty good paycheck for three months' worth of work. Right. So they so they figured that
0: out. Does that business model. So let's talk about the current uh, state of things. We've had this pandemic and and this hiatus. Did that business model basically continue up to the point of the pandemic where a star could come in and, and you could have a, a serious play on Broadway and fill seats with, you know, a Denzel Washington or a Julia Roberts type
2: yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, we had, you know, Daniel Craig and his wife, right. did, um, betrayal on Broadway. Um, uh, yeah. you know, Jeremy Pittman did, uh, Speed the Plow. Um, of course, he left it because he, you know, he, cl- he claimed he got, uh, mercury poisoning because he was eating too much sushi. And I remember, uh, David Mamet <laughs> saying to me, well, I wish Jeremy <laughs> good luck in his new career as a thermometer. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, the thing is you, you do need, yeah, you need stars for plays, but there were plays without stars. There was a wonderful play a few years ago on Broadway called, uh, called the humans that had no star and great play. And then yeah, my book ends, my book ends in you know 2001. So I don't cover the plays that came along in the 2000s. But you did have a play like doubt with Cherry Jones, who was mm-hmm. not a big star back then. But that was tremendous. That was successful on Broadway. You had um, Mary Louise Parker in proof. That was a great play. So plays were by no means uh, scarce in the 2000s. And I really do think it was something like Angels in America, which reminded people of how great plays can be uh, that kept the play going on Broadway. As for Chekhov, um, I, as much as I love Chekhov, I think he's a bit tricky to put on Broadway. Um, three Sisters, The Cherry Orchard, Uncle Vanya, Ivanov, um, great, great plays. But I would imagine The Seagull, I would imagine that um, – the way you get Chekhov to Broadway is you would first open it at one of the nonprofit theaters, mm. Manhattan Theater Club or the mm-hmm. Roundabout. And they're on Broadway. I mean, they're technically they, – they are Broadway houses, not technically. They are. Yeah. I would run a play there, and I would I would try to put some name actors into it. You right. know, Chekhov is a little uh, – little, well, but, you know, when you think about it, before the pandemic, when Broadway was pretty much being uh, – the engine was tourism. And you really wanted to get uh, all those millions of people who are coming to New York. Um, Probably tough to get a bunch of people from uh, Argentina in to see uh, Chekhov play. Uh, They probably want to come to New York and have fun and they want to go see uh, a big Broadway show, a spectacular Mm -hmm. musical or something like that. But when Broadway comes back after we finally have a vaccine and this whole thing is behind us, it's going to be dependent on New Yorkers, not tourists. It's going to take tourists a long time to come back to New York. And if you want to reach New Yorkers, uh, yeah, I would do – if you could do a great production of The Cherry Orchard with some first-rate actors, you could probably at a reasonable price. That's the other thing that's going to change. Mm-hmm. They're not going to be able to reopen Broadway and say, hey, by the way, we're open for business, and you got to pay $900 to see Hamilton. That's not going to happen. Broadway has to fundamentally restructure its financial model so that when it reopens, it can entice New Yorkers back. By saying, okay, the tickets are 150 bucks, hmm. and we're going to do a great production of the Seagull with some terrific New York actors that you all know. So come back, come back.
0: Right. And and is the reason why New Yorkers won't pay is you're trying to get New Yorkers to come multiple times in a year rather than uh, they'll shell out anything because it's the trip of their lifetime if they're coming from say Kansas well, or yeah, Minnesota. Yeah, yeah, but something.
2: even if right, but even if you were a New Yorker and you're going to say, okay, geez, I want to. I want to take my kids. Yeah. They want to see Hamilton. And it's going to cost 800 bucks a ticket. Uh, so a family of four, it's going to cost me almost $4,000 to go to Broadway. If you're in New York, you're going to say, well, that's it for the year. That was right. the one big expense we had. We're not going back for a while.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And especially coming out of the uh, year that we've just had, uh, people have been tightening their belts all over.
2: But uh, by, by the way, though, I do hope I do hope that somebody does a great cause one of my favorite places uncle Vanya
1: mm. and I
2: saw it when I, I was a student and I was uh, I was an exchange student. I was living in London at the time of the eighties and I saw um, uh, Michael Gambon. Oh, uncle yeah. Vanya. Right. It was one of the great performances I've ever seen. It was just a heartbreaking performance. I think if I'm not mistaken, I think Jonathan price may have been in that production with Michael Gambon, but But no, I love I love Chekhov. Um, But you know, let's face it, Chekhov is a it's a bit of a hard sell in the in the Broadway before the pandemic. Yeah,
0: I saw uh, there was a production of uh, Uncle Vanya in two thousand with Derek Jacobi and Laura Linney and Brian Murray. Oh well, yeah, all
2: three great actors. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, great play, Uncle Vanya.
0: Yeah, great play. Uh, Okay, so I have one more question about your method, uh, and then I have a surprise bonus question. So okay. I was reading an article by Joe Westerfield of Newsweek, and he said about you, he is a great teller of tales, even if some people don't like the tales he tells— and Riedel has always had some low sources in high places who can be counted on to add some spice to the stories. And I'm wondering what do you think he means by low sources? Is this? Are you talking to limo drivers and and uh, people who are flies on the wall that are able to to give you the dirt? or does he mean that you talk to people who don't mind being scurrilous and and uh, you know telling tales out of school and that kind of thing?
2: Uh, yeah, I think he means that I don't mind talking to people who uh, don't mind telling tales. Yeah. Out of school. But, um, <laughs> but frankly, I mean, that's that's what every reporter does. Right. You know? yeah. I mean, reporters are we don't have the stories. We don't we don't get the scoop without people telling us things they shouldn't be telling us. And you have to be aware everybody who tells you something they shouldn't be telling you has an agenda. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But if you've been knocking around as long as I have you understand and you know what the agenda is and you know why they're telling you what they shouldn't be telling you. But as a reporter, as long as what they're telling you checks out, you know, I don't really care what the agenda is. If it's true and if it's juicy, I'm going to use it.
0: Yeah. Now, when you're writing a book, I guess it's your people want to talk because they want to get their side of the story into history and and preserve it and that kind of thing, maybe settle some old scores. But when you're actually doing your reporting, when the the plays are in pre-production and and haven't yet come out and are being cast or are being funded or that kind of thing. I'm wondering if people if you ever get pulled into the story, if people are using you as kind of a go-between or to find out uh intel on what other people are thinking or doing or did you ever find yourself in kind of a a position where you you had information that you thought would be helpful to the people you were interviewing?
2: Oh, I um, mean, being manipulated all the time yeah every report being (laughs) manipulated you know it's not you know you can't have these illusions that oh we're fearless crusaders seeking out the truth and we just pick (laughs) up the phone and we say we demand to know the truth yeah no no nobody nobody is under any obligation to talk to a reporter in fact if uh, you know if a reporter calls you i wouldn't take the call frankly um but uh (laughs) you're being used but you're using them and it, it becomes a kind of fun it becomes a kind of fun game that you're all playing yeah. I know what you're using me for, you know what I'm using you for. And we can all come to an arrangement so that we can all get out of this column or this book or this chapter what we want. I can get my juicy story, you can get something out there that I always used to say to my sources, I say, look, think of me as a murder weapon that has no fingerprints. <laughs> I would say if you want to settle a score, if you want to put the knife in someone's back, as long as what you're telling me checks out, I'm happy to be your murder weapon.
0: Yeah. Well, it is so fun to read. And I'm tempted to end our conversation there, but I did have one more surprise bonus question I wanted to ask. (laughs) Sure. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, It's 2021. The pandemic is over, and the world is eager to get back to the theater. You are an impresario who meets a young playwright with talent. His name is Anton, and he writes serious dramas. He desperately wants to make his career in the theater. He has two offers from producers. The first is to mount a production in Chicago. They can't afford any stars, but the producer promises to cast the show perfectly with accomplished actors. The producer has a vision of starting in Chicago, building a critical buzz, bringing the play to an off-Broadway theater, win surprises, get some good reviews, and so forth, and then move to Broadway when the play is ready. The second producer is in love with the play and thinks a big Broadway splash is the way to go. He has a big theater he can line up and a well-known Hollywood actor who's never been on the stage before, but is eager to play the leading role. He wants to start the show in November for the holiday season, and critics be damned, it's full speed ahead. Which path would you recommend for the young Anton?
2: I would say uh, the element of surprise in the theater is always good. Mm. Critics and audiences are always looking for something that they didn't expect. Yeah. So what I would do is I would say to the young Anton, I would say, go to Chicago with that fine cast of unknown actors. Mm -hmm. See how well you do there. You get good reviews. Then come to New York. Open with that cast off Broadway. hmm Get your good reviews here in New York. That sophisticated New York New York audience who's reading the New York Times and the New Yorker, they will flock to see it because it's gonna go it's gonna be the hot play of, of yeah. the time. Yeah. And then I'm gonna move it to Broadway, but I'm gonna fire everybody and turn it into a one man <laughs> show starring Hugh Jackman. That's what I would do. <laughs> <laughs> that would be my plan for Anton. <laughs>
0: right. Well, maybe you have a career as a uh, an impresario and producer. It seems like good advice. <laughs> That's what I would do. <laughs> Trust okay. me, Anton. And, and
2: Anton, you know what? Oh, you may be you may be horrified. You may be, oh my god, how could I? How could I sell out like this? How could All oh, my friends got fired, and they've turned this <laughs> into a one man show starring Hugh Jackman. What about my art? And Anton, I guarantee you, the first week you get that royalty check. <laughs> From the Hugh Jackman (laughs) Show on Broadway, you will never think of your friends again.
0: Uh, Okay, well, let's leave things there. (laughs) Michael Riedel, thank you so much for joining me on The History of Literature. Pleasure. My, My pleasure. Okay, there we go. My thanks to Michael Riedel for stopping by. What a great storyteller. I'm telling you people. If you're like me and you like those books about behind-the-scenes Hollywood, or in this case, Broadway, you will love this book. It's a treat. You can't go to a play right now, at least here in the States, but this book will take you there for a little while, the personalities clashing, the artistic struggles, the money, the fraudsters and con artists, the true geniuses, the successes and failures, and the ultimate triumph. Great stuff. It's Singular Sensation, The Triumph of Broadway, by Michael Riedel. We are teamed up with the Podglomerate. That's www.thepodglomerate.com and LitHub Radio. Find us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and the web at historyofliterature.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can find us at patreon.com slash literature. Or you can pick up a little something something over there on historyofliterature.com slash shop. By something, something, I mean a mug or a tote bag. That's it. Those are the two somethings. Oh, and there's virtual coffee, which is essentially a $5 donation to me for the holidays. I might put a little something, something into my coffee in honor of the holidays. Some holiday cheer for your humble little podcaster. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.